In last week's study, just to get you up to speed, if you're not with us yet, we focused on Jacob, the son of Isaac. At the age of around 75, he was forced to leave home for the first time for two reasons. First reason, his brother Esau wanted to kill him Literally, because he felt that Jacob had stolen his birthright and blessing, the double portion of the inheritance and the special blessing given by their father, which were supposed to go to the firstborn. Secondly, Jacob had to leave home because his mother, Rebekah, didn't want him to take a wife from the local pagan people, so her and Isaac, the father, sent Jacob, their son, off to Rebekah's people to find a good wife. And so God used this whole journey, Jacob leaving home and going to his mother's people to look for a wife, God used that whole journey to separate Jacob from all the things he had trusted in in his life instead of trusting God. His relationship with his mother, his security, his prestige and reputation, and his wealth. He lost all of that on this journey. And in this place of losing all those things, toward the end of his journey, in the place of feeling like God must want nothing to do with him, the Lord allowed Jacob to see a vision of what was going on in the spiritual realm around him at that moment, and it caused Jacob to famously exclaim, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And after the Lord met with him and promised to bless him, Jacob was so blown away by the Lord's kindness that he committed to follow the Lord all the days of his life. He had his salvation moment, his salvation experience. This week we're going to pick things up with Jacob reaching the end of his journey, the destination of his mother's people in Padan Aram, the place known as Haran. We'll see Jacob meet the girl of his dreams, and then we'll watch as Jacob learns the painful lesson that what goes around comes around. And this chapter is a soap opera, a telenovela for my Latino friends. It's full of intrigue, romance, deception, and just enough humor and nonsense to keep the men interested. So let's jump right in. Verse one, it says, so Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and he looked and saw a well in the field. Now what's neat is that this will actually be the exact same well where Abraham's servant Eliezer encountered Rebekah, Isaac's wife, and Jacob's mom nearly a hundred years earlier. It's gonna be the exact same place. And at this time in history in the Middle East, life was centered around wells. Unless you lived by a river or by a large freshwater lake, you had to have a well to get water and to live. And we mentioned last week that the way that Jacob gets a wife in this chapter is gonna be pretty much the exact opposite of how his dad, Isaac, got a wife. You see, Isaac's wife, as we said, was found for him by his father's servant, Eliezer, while Jacob has to go on a journey himself in order to find his wife. And as we said, that's because in the, the typology that's at work in here, where these men finding their wives has been a picture of salvation, everyone's salvation story is a little bit different. We're all saved by Jesus and the work of Jesus, but the way that Jesus saves us and gets us to the place of responding to him is unique in each of our lives. Each of our journeys is unique. And as we also mentioned last week, the way God brings a man and a woman together is generally unique. Every 
couple's story is different. So I just want to say again to, to any single people, notice that in Jacob's life, what he has to do, even though Isaac had a, had a wonderful God story where his spouse was literally just brought to him and just showed up and he's, he's there praying one day, mourning his mother's death, and he looks up and boom, there she is. Even though that was his story, Jacob's story is very different. He has to go and look for a wife. And, and so please take note if you're single, he has to get himself to where potential spouses are. He has to make the journey. He's looking for a wife, and so step one is finding the local well, because that's where people are going to be hanging out. Then the next step after that is getting into the local town where a wife is likely to be. So if you're a Christian and you're single, let me just encourage you to not wait for a Jesus Christ lookalike to knock on your door while you're praying. While your woman's Bible study or your men's group is a wonderful thing and you should keep doing it, that meeting is probably not going to be interrupted by your future spouse knocking on the door in the middle of the Bible study because their car has broken down right outside the house where you're having a Bible study. That's probably not the way it's going to go. But there are a surprising number of Christian singles who seem to actually think that. That's the way it's going to go. If I were single... I would be asking one question. Where are the most single people who love Jesus hanging out in my city? That's the question that I would be asking. And guess what? That's where I'd start hanging out. If I found out that it was a church, I'd be like, this is great. My church meets on Sunday nights, which means I can go there on Sunday mornings. And if someone said to me, is this your home church? I'd be like, no, I'm just here trying to connect with the will of the Lord. And I see five potential wills of the Lord from right here. Praise God, I'm in the right place. And then you give them the pitch. If you're a guy, the pitch is very simple. You say, I got a Bible. I love Jesus. I got a job. You interested? Yes? Excellent. No? Next, please. It's not that complicated, okay? But it just kills me when I meet a Christian single and they're like, oh, I'd just love to be married. What are you doing to put yourself in a place where God can do something? I'm praying. That's good. Keep praying. But maybe God is saying, can you give me something to work with here? Give me something to work with. Put yourself in a place where God can do something. So that's a word for somebody who's single and would like to be married. Give God something to work with. Put yourself in a place where he can move. Well, we keep reading our story and it says, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone, underlined large stone, was on the well's mouth. So sitting on top of the well. Now all the flocks would be gathered there and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. So to protect that all-important local well against things like Animals may be falling into it and contaminating the water supply or, or other things falling in or other types of contamination. Men would roll a large flat stone on top of the well to seal it when it wasn't being used. And this thing would typically weigh several hundred pounds and require multiple men to move. That's going to be important as we keep going. Verse 4, and Jacob said to them, to the local shepherds, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. Then he said to them, so he's thinking, Haran, oh, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? See, Laban was Jacob's uncle, his mother's brother, and Jacob's plan was to go meet up with Laban's family and stay with them while he was in Haran looking for a wife. 
And they said, yeah, we know him. So he said to them, is he well? And they said, he's well. Not really big fans of the guy. And look, his daughter Rachel is actually coming with the sheep right now. Now verse 17 is going to tell us that Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. And yet again, we're going to see the next of the patriarchs, Jacob, ending up with a ridiculously hot wife. And I can't help but conclude that the Lord keeps making note of this in his word because he wanted men to read this and say, there seems to be a connection between living for the Lord and marrying up. And so if you're a single guy, take note of that. If you walk with the Lord, you can probably jump a good two points in marriage. If you're a six, you can probably get an eight if you're walking with the Lord. Make a note of that, single men. Well, Jacob sees Rachel walking toward them, and he can tell immediately she is the business. She is the cat's pajamas. She is hot stuff, just flat out gorgeous. And so now Jacob has to figure out, well, how am I going to get rid of these other guys? I mean, I need some one-on-one time with this woman if I'm going to win her over. And man, I know you'd never manipulate a situation like that for a woman. But this is what Jacob was thinking. This is what he's doing. Verse 7, then he said to the shepherds, look, it's, it's still high day. It's still early in the day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. So water the sheep and, and go and feed them. So what Jacob says is, guys, it's not the end of the day. It's not closing time. The cattle should still be out there grazing. So give them a little drink and get back out there, guys. Go get them. But they said, oh, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And they, underline they, implying more than one person, have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. So the idea is a couple of things. Number one, this is like the original water cooler moment where these guys are gathering around around the well to basically waste time and not work. But they're also saying, you know, hey, we, we can't water the flocks until everybody's flocks are here, and then we'll work together to roll the stone off. And so Moses, who wrote Genesis, again wants to draw our attention to the fact that the stone on the well would normally require multiple men to move. But there's already multiple men there, multiple shepherds there. And, and, and so what they're really also saying is, uh, we're not going anywhere until we get to hang out with Rachel a little bit as well. That's not going to happen, buddy. Keep dreaming. Now, verse 9, now while he was still speaking with them, and when you look at the phrase while he was still in the original Hebrew, it means Jacob speaking to them continually. So the idea is he keeps trying to get rid of these guys who can get alone with Rachel. Then we read, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And these other shepherds won't leave, so Jacob can't get any alone time with Rachel, which means he's going to have to find some other way to impress her. Verse 10, And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. 75-year-old, wimpy, mama's boy Jacob sees this beautiful woman and, and something happens. Something happens. There's this chemical surge inside of his body that he's, he's never felt before. It's testosterone. And as Jacob suddenly thinks, how am I going to win this girl over? It suddenly hits him. The obvious plan is me move big stone. And so he does just that. He goes and he, he moves this heavy object single-handedly, you know, rolls up his sleeves. What's up? Pulls it out. 
And then he draws enough water to feed her whole flock. And he's, you know, he's drawing it slowly, just looking at her. Showing off the guns, that's right. Giving her a free show right there. And this is what the guy does. And in, in, in this little moment, we get insight into how life works for, for many, many men. You know, if it weren't for the desire to be with a woman, many men would never get their lives into gear. We'd, we'd just never do it because we'd probably say, you know, I'm living comfortably with my parents. My mom's cooking is delicious. I'm making enough money for my own car, pizza, and, and all the video games that I want, so, so I'm good. That's about as far as we'd probably go. Many times it's only because of a woman that we actually say, man, I better figure out what I'm gonna do with my life because if, if her father asks me how I'm gonna provide for her, I gotta have an answer. I gotta figure out a career. I gotta learn how to read. I gotta learn how to, how to do laundry and bathe regularly and all these kinds of things. And for many guys, it's only a woman that causes them to step up in various areas of life. That's a good thing. I know it's been a good thing in my life. And, and so single ladies, please, do not even date a guy who's not willing to get his life in gear for you. Listen to me. If he won't start doing it in order to win you, he's probably not going to start doing it after he already has you. You need to know that. Get yourself a Jacob. You see, he's not perfect. He's got a ton of issues. But here's what he has going for him. He loves the Lord and he's willing to change and grow so that he can be with Rachel. That's what you should look for, someone who loves the Lord and is willing to change and grow in order to be with you. And so here's what I want us to make a note of. Jacob sees Rachel, and, and one of the things he instinctively wants to do is he just wants to meet her practical needs. He wants to take care of her sheep, make her life that little bit easier. Her sheep need watering, done. So make a note of this. Jacob's passion for Rachel stirred a desire in him to provide for her. Jacob's passion for Rachel stirred a desire in him to provide for her. And I do want to say this so that no, nobody feels defeated. I know that we live in a different time. We live in a very expensive city where a massive percentage of families need both the man and the woman to work in order to make ends meet. And what I'm saying, though, is that when a man loves a woman, the desire is there to provide for her practical needs. That's not always possible, depending on where you live, but the desire is there. And if the desire is not there, then something's off, something's wrong, and you need to flee that situation if you haven't married that person yet, ladies. Verse 11, now Jacob, the new uber man, just, just keeps rolling with this, hasn't even spoken to Rachel yet, and the next thing we read is, then Jacob kissed Rachel. So this girl has just made Jacob come to life. He's a new man. He knows what he wants. and He's got a plan to go out and get it. And he wants Rachel, so he's going to go get her. He's just wowed her with feats of strength and kissed her, which is a heck of a way to make a first impression. You know, if you want to meet a lady, apparently you just go to a church where all the single Christian people are and start lifting heavy objects. When you have her attention, you just walk over and kiss her. It might get you arrested or it might work. I, I don't know. But then just when it seems like Jacob is a new man, an assertive man, a confident man, having just kissed her, just when it's going so well, the next thing we read is, and lifted up his voice and wept and wept. Oh. 
Jacob, you're doing so good. You were doing so good. And, and, and guys, just a practical tip. When most women imagine a romantic kiss, especially a romantic first kiss, it's not followed by the guy weeping. That's just a practical thing you guys need to know. But that's what Jacob does. Verse 12, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebecca's son. So he's... <laughs> And my brother's trying to kill me, and my parents, they sent me away from home, and I don't have anything, and then I saw you, and you're just so beautiful. I just got a lot going on right now, you know, emotionally, and this feels so good to let this out. And uh, nevertheless, when the Lord moves, the Lord moves, and Rachel is somehow, somehow drawn to this guy. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Now here's what you need to know about good old Uncle Laban. He's an opportunist. And you might remember, we first met him back in chapter 24 when Eliezer, Abraham's head servant, came looking for a wife for Isaac and he found Rebekah. And we were told in chapter 24 that Laban looked at Rebekah after she had encountered Eliezer and he noticed that Eliezer had given her expensive nose rings and bracelets and he heard Rebekah talking about the wealth that Eliezer's master Abraham had and that's when Laban runs out and says to Eliezer, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. That's the kind of guy that Laban is. So when Jacob shows up, Laban's probably thinking, this guy is from a wealthy family. Cha-ching, there's some money to be made here. But he's actually going to be very disappointed in that regard. So he's going to have to find another way to take advantage of Jacob and this situation, which is what Laban is known for. He's an opportunist who takes advantage of people and tricks and deceives people. You can probably see where this is going. So he, Jacob, told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he, that's Jacob, stayed with him for a month. Now in the very next verse, we're going to find out that it wasn't just a month. Jacob had no intention of going anywhere without Rachel. He just wanted to be around Rachel. And so he starts working for Uncle Laban in an attempt to justify the free room and board that he's been getting. And again, there's just this transformation that takes place in Jacob all because of a woman. And all of a sudden, nobody needs to explain to Jacob that he needs to work. No one has to convince him. It's just a byproduct of wanting to be with Rachel. This is what I got to do if I want to be with her, and I want to be with her. One of the things that our Heavenly Father desires to develop in each of us, especially men, is a good work ethic. He desires that we work hard with integrity because the way we approach our work, as with all things in our life, reflects him. It reflects him, our Heavenly Father. You know, when my boys are, are in their CrossFit kids class, I watch because I don't want them to be the laziest kids there ever. I don't want them to be giving subpar effort because they're representing our family, even as kids, even when they're playing tag. And the same is true with our Heavenly Father. He wants us to represent him well in the way that we work. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul is saying if a man is unwilling to work hard to try and provide for his family, 
then it's like he's denying his faith and he's, he's worse than an unbeliever because a real believer would never do that. A real believer would do what he has to do to work hard and do his best to provide for his family. It's strong words about how much God cares about work and how much our work ethic is supposed to be affected by our faith. So make a note of this. This is a good one. In God's design, a man gets a job before he gets a wife. In God's design, a man gets a job before he gets a wife. Ladies, get yourself a man with a job. Take note. When Charlene and I wanted to get married, we we didn't really need to talk about this. This was just assumed. The question wasn't, well, do I need to get a job so that I can provide a living for us? The question was, how can I get a job that will provide a living for us? And the second I landed my first full-time job in ministry, which was in Central Texas, we set a wedding date, the same day, the same day, boom. A job comes before a wife, and all the fathers of daughters in the room said, Amen, amen, that's right. Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, well, because you're my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Laban says, you're my relative, and you shouldn't be working for me for free, so what do you think your wages should be? Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, the actual word there is weak. But, underline the word but, because it tells you we're contrasting. But Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. So you have Rachel, her name means ew, as in a a female sheep. Beautiful, cuddly, just wonderful. Leah means weary, weary. And when it says that Leah's eyes were delicate, scholars suggest, I think very charitably, it could mean she was cross-eyed or had a lazy eye, but it more likely means that she wasn't pleasant to look at. The bottom line, to be blunt, is that when it came to the looks department, Rachel's hot, Leah is not. That's the point this text is trying to make right here, as awkward as that may be. Verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And now we understand that Jacob's father, Isaac, sent Jacob on this journey to find a wife with next to no money. Because we find that Jacob doesn't have the means to pay the bridal price, to pay the dowry. And so what he's trying to do here is he's trying to barter and strike up a deal with Uncle Laban to exchange years of labor for Rachel's hand in marriage. Verse 19, and Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man, so stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Isn't that special? Well, Jacob really loved Rachel. He really loved her. He was willing to work for her dad for seven years in exchange for the right to marry her. I mean, I'm probably only gonna make my daughter's husbands wash my car for seven years, but, but Jacob really wanted to marry Rachel. He was willing to work for her dad for seven years, and ladies, if a guy isn't willing to make sacrifices to be with you, he's probably not worth being with. When we look at the famous love chapter of the Bible in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13, what's the first thing it tells us about love? It begins with love is what? Patient. Love is patient. And this is what we're seeing from Jacob. Seven years, sure thing, as long as I get to be with her at the end of that. So make a note of this. Love is willing to wait. Lust is not. Love is willing to wait. 
Lust is not. Now, I do want to be honest. I mean, before you get married, you've probably got love and lust going on. You just want to make sure that you've got love going on in there too, and that love is what wins out. You have to let love drive your actions. Lust has no interest in waiting. Lust is impatient. Lust is all about instant gratification. Verse 20 cracks me up though because it, it so beautifully demonstrates the difference between men and women. Because a woman reads verse 20 and says, you know, that is so romantic. He is just so in love and he just longs for her companionship and the years of work just seem to fly by because his head is just filled with beautiful visions of his wife-to-be, Rachel. Well, in the next verse, verse 21, it's going to tell us exactly what Jacob was longing for for those seven years. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. You see, Jacob has not just worked his butt off for seven years so that they can hold hands and talk about their feelings. I'm not saying they couldn't also do that. I'm just saying that was not Jacob's primary motivation. Jacob wanted to do the one thing with his wife that he could only do with his wife. And let me be blunt here as well. You say you've already been blunt. Let me be blunter, okay. I have known of way, way too many single women who end up sleeping with their boyfriend and are then frustrated and mystified when he seems to drag his feet on getting married. Well, no kidding. It's because you've taken one of man's great motivations for marriage and given it away to him for free. Single ladies, don't, don't put yourself in that situation. Don't do it. If he loves you, he'll be willing to wait. And if he loves you, but he can't wait, he's gonna figure out a way to marry you faster. He'll start a business. He'll work 14-hour days. He'll rob a bank if he has to. But whether it's time or effort, he will find a way if he loves you. Do not sell yourself short. The desire for sex with Rachel transformed Jacob from a lazy homebody into a diligent, hardworking man as the Lord intended and still does to this day. And single men, I'm not gonna say I recommend this, but I just wanna point out that if you really wanted to make an epic power move on the man who's gonna become your father-in-law, you can just use Jacob's line on him at your wedding. Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. I think it'll really, it'll change the power dynamic of your relationship or, or get you punched in the face. One of the two. But either way, I'm gonna enjoy watching what happens. So keep that in mind. Verse 22, and Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. So it's a party. The wine is flowing, and as we shall see, Laban is probably making sure that Jacob gets more than enough wine on this particular night. Verse 23, now it came to pass in the evening, make you know that it's the evening, that he, Laban, took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. So it's a night wedding. The bride is veiled from head to toe. Jacob is drunk. The tent is dark. And nobody is going to expect that their father-in-law is going to do something like this. Verse 24, and Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. That'll come up in the next chapter. So it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. So Jacob wakes up the next morning, opens his eyes, 
rolls over and he's looking at Leah. Probably cross-eyed Leah right there. And he just goes, oh my, ah! And he grabs a sheet and goes running out the tent and we read and he said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived, 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 deceived me? You might want to underline that word deceived. And Laban said, oh, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, 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 firstborn. Underline the word firstborn. So Laban smirks and says sarcastically, Oh, did I forget to mention that we have a custom that the firstborn needs to be taken care of before the younger daughter? My bad, but I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, you're married now. Deception and duplicity around the birth order? A, a trickster who makes sure that the firstborn gets taken care of? This all would have been hitting pretty close to home for Jacob. Laban keeps speaking in verse 27 and he says, we'll fulfill her week. He's referring here to a week of years, the seven years that Jacob has already worked. He's saying, Leah's the fulfillment of the seven years that you just worked. And then he says, and we will give you this one, speaking of Rachel, also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Oh, you wanted the hot one? Oh yeah, that's gonna cost you another seven years. Verse 28. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Again, that'll come up in the next chapter too. Then Jacob also went into Rachel and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. So after all the emotion and anger and testosterone and shock had died down, Jacob's mind would have unquestionably drifted back to the question he had asked Laban, why then have you deceived me? And the Lord would have undoubtedly guided Jacob's thoughts back to the times he had taken advantage of his brother Esau's hunger to trade for his birthright and pretended to be Esau in order to secure his ailing father's blessing. And it would have dawned on Jacob, whose very name means heel grabber, someone who trips up others, that in his life he was now simply reaping what he had sown. And now someone had deceived him in order to make sure that the firstborn got what they were entitled to. Jacob had taken advantage of others and now he was being taken advantage of. So write this down. Jacob had to learn the transcendent truth of sowing and reaping. He had to learn the transcendent truth of sowing and reaping. This principle, sowing and reaping, man, we could, we could do a 10-week series on this one principle. Don't worry, I won't. It's one of the key truths of life that the Bible lays out for us, that the Bible says this is how the world works, especially for believers. So the Apostle Paul put it like this in his letter to the Galatians. It's on your outlines. Paul said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. As a pastor as a father, this is one of the things that I most desire us to understand as believers and, and as a father to my kids. All of us are either 
working this principle to produce life or death in every area of our lives right now. When it comes to our physical health, we cannot sow nachos and reap a six-pack. And if you can, keep your mouth shut because everybody hates that person with that kind of metabolism, okay? We, we, we cannot ignore our marriage, fail to invest time in it, share the deep truths of our heart with other members of the opposite sex and expect to have a great marriage. You just can't do that. We cannot expect God's blessings in the areas of our life where we refuse to do things God's way. It's sowing and reaping. You can't reap where you haven't sown. You can't expect a return where you haven't invested. And we're all working this principle for better or worse in every area of our life right now. If like Jacob, you're a deceiver, guess what? God will make sure that you come across a better deceiver than you. And you'll reap what you've sown. Parents, huge insight here. Let me encourage you not to talk to your kids about behaviors and actions and decisions as, as good or bad. As good or bad. Don't do that because that's bad. Don't do that because that's good. Because the Bible tells us that if you're a believer... All sins forgiven. All sins forgiven. Talk to your kids about sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. Help them understand that if they choose to sin, if they choose to go in that direction, the Lord's still going to love them. They'll still be forgiven. But the reason you don't want them to do that is not because it's bad. The reason you don't want them to do that is because you know and you've experienced that they will reap what they sow. They'll experience hurt and pain and destruction in their lives. Let them know that because we want them to experience the fullness of life, a life of love and joy and peace, we want them to choose to walk in the ways of the Lord because he's the only path that leads to those things. They can choose. Sure, you, you can do whatever you want, truthfully. Sooner or later, you're going to be old enough that you'll be able to do it, and I won't know about it. If you want to rebel, you'll find a way to do it. I don't want you to stay away from certain things because they're bad. I want you to stay away from certain things and choose others because I want to see your life full of good things, full of joy and peace and love and hope and all those good things. I don't want you to choose this because you'll reap what you sow. And I don't want to see you reap these things. And more importantly, you shouldn't want to reap those things. Our kids need to understand that, that it's not about whether mom or dad find out. It's about the truth that even if mom and dad never find out, they'll still reap what they sow. And because we love them, we want to see them reap a harvest of life and of good, good things. It's not stay away from this movie or this music because it's bad. It's, hey, just so you know, if you fill your mind with that, it's going to change the way you think about relationships. It's going to change the way you view people. And it's going to lead you to some behaviors that are not going to give you the life that you want. That's what it's about. And that's true for you and I too, by the way as children of our heavenly father, twice in his first letter to the Corinthians, a church that was just 
full of people who were just engaging in things that would absolutely shock us. And Paul had to tell them things, not exactly this, but I'm talking things on the level where he has to say like, hey, just a word to the men's ministry, those monthly strip club nights need to stop. They're not a good way to reach people with the gospel. And they're like, oh, okay. That's sort of the level of how messed up the church in Corinth was. And yet to this group of believers, twice in his first letter to them, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Other translations will say, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. The idea is Paul saying, listen, I can do whatever I want. There's no sin that's going to separate me from the love of God or cause me to lose my salvation. But he says, here's the point. Not everything that I could do is beneficial. Not everything that I could do is helpful. Paul makes it real simple in his letter to the Romans when he says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So obviously, most importantly, that verse is true in the eternal sense, but Paul's saying this is true in every area of our life. Where you choose to walk with Jesus, there'll be life. Where you choose to rebel against him and walk with sin, there's going to be death in that part of your life. It's that simple. So Paul says you can do whatever you want, but not everything that you could do is beneficial. It's not helpful. And that's why you shouldn't want to do it because you should want a life full of the good things of God. You should want joy. You should want peace. You should want a good marriage. You should want a strong family. You should want good friendships. So make the choices that will produce those things. So important because when we talk about behavior, that thinking, that thinking is one of the great antidotes against legalism. Legalism is when you say, don't do that because it's bad. And the problem is we end up raising kids, and sometimes even adults, who don't actually understand why it's bad, why it's not good. And so they get to the point now where they can make their own decisions, or we get to the point where we get far enough away from our Christian upbringing, and we begin to think, well, I don't really know why it's bad. Is it so bad? Is it really And if we can't answer that question, guess what? We're probably going to try it. We're probably going to try it because we don't actually understand why it's not good. So don't talk about good and bad. Talk about here's what it leads to. Here's what it leads to. I don't want my kids to behave a certain way so that they can be good Christian boys and girls. It's because I want them to experience the abundant life that Jesus talked about, that he said he came to give every single one of us. I want that for them. That's what it's about. It's a great antidote to legalism. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and let me just point this out. It's worth making a note of in your Bible. The word unloved there literally means hated, hated. Jacob hated Leah at this time. And while that might make you feel bad for Leah, just keep in mind that Jacob had never pursued Leah. He had never loved Leah He never intended to marry Leah. He didn't work seven years in order to marry Leah. She deceived him and cheated him out of seven years of his life, which is why he hates her. But it's also a reminder of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, 
or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. I've shared this before, but it always bears repeating. God did not design us for intimate relationships with multiple partners. And I don't even mean just sexually. I mean even emotionally. And Jesus himself told us what would happen. As we draw near to one, we'll draw away from the other. And it won't just stop with us preferring one over the other. We'll eventually and inevitably hate the one and love the other. So if you're in a marriage and you begin to, as a guy, just bond emotionally with another woman, begin sharing intimate thoughts and feelings with that person emotionally, even if it's not sexual yet, you're just going to start growing in your disdain for your own spouse. And nothing they do is going to be good enough. You know, they'll come home with a new haircut and their hair is short. It'll be like, oh, I liked you so much better with long hair. They'll come back with long hair and they'll be like, really, just the same haircut again? You know, they'll make you dinner and it'll be like, oh, man, this is just so healthy and not delicious. Like, oh, it's got no flavor. You'll make them something flavorful and then you'll say like, are you trying to make me fat? trying to take away all my gains. What's going on here? What are you doing to me? And just nothing will be good enough, which is, which is why when I, I encounter married couples and they're at that place where just they're bickering and there doesn't seem to be an issue. But for one of them, they just say, I don't know what it is. I'm just, it's like I'm never good enough for him. I'm never good enough for her. There's just always something. A question I always have to ask is to get each person alone so that I can ask them like honestly, honestly, Have you been sharing your life with anybody else other than your spouse of the opposite sex? Have you been conversing, talking with them about marriage difficulties? Have you been pouring your heart out to somebody else? Because that's usually what the cause is in those situations. And so what does Leah do? Well, she wants the marriage to work, but she started it in the worst way possible, which is deceiving somebody into marrying you by pretending to be someone else. It's never a good way to start a marriage, in my experience. Well, she does what we often do. She just lies to herself. And in Leah's case, she chose to believe one of the most ridiculous lies, which some women still believe to this day, which is, if there's trouble in my marriage, maybe a baby will fix it which is about as stupid as the thinking of a couple Charlene and I saw on the reality TV show, The Amazing Race. We were watching an old season the other day and there was this one couple in the first episode, they come on and they introduce themselves and and they look kind of in despair and they say, you know, we're hoping that doing this reality show together will save and heal our marriage. How many of you know that if your marriage is in trouble, Putting it on TV is not the answer. You guys know that, right? Okay. (laughs) We were just like, this is not going to end well. It's like, we've got trouble in our marriage. Let's add stress and cameras to the situation. What could possibly go wrong? Same thing with a baby. Oh, man, we're not getting along. Let's add a lack of sleep to the situation. I'm sure that will really, really help. It's not the answer. It's not the answer. Well, we keep reading. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, or again, hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, which means a son. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. 
So having children, especially sons, was considered so important for women at this time, such a blessing that if a woman was barren, she was considered cursed by God. And so we're seeing that Rachel right now is barren, and that's going to become an issue in the next chapter. Verse 33, then she, Leah, conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved or hated, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which means heard. She conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi, which means attached. But that didn't happen. Jacob still hated her. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son. This woman is a machine and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, which means let him be praised. Then she stopped bearing. So she finally realizes, hey, you know, God is blessing me with kids, but, but it's to bless me. It's not to make my husband love me. So I'm going to praise God and thank him for his kindness to me rather than thinking this is going to change my relationship with my husband. Now, you ladies might be thinking, I don't understand, Pastor Jeff. If, if Jacob hates Leah so much, how come he apparently keeps sleeping with her? And you know, I'd love to tell you, but we are out of time, and so we're going to have to... <laughs> no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, I'm going to tell you. The answer is... Uh, the answer is pretty ugly. I'm not going to lie to you. And this, this might shock you, some of you women, but just because a man has sex with a woman does not mean that he loves her. And it does not mean that it will make him love her. It's just that simple. Jacob's being kind of a dog in this situation as far as Leah is concerned. And this messy story is going to keep going into the next chapter, but that's all the time we're going to have for today. Sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. Let me say this in conclusion. Ask yourself today, in in this coming time of prayer and worship we're going to have, ask the Lord to show you if you're sowing life or death in the key areas of your life. Maybe just think about your life honestly. Think about what are the areas where things are, are difficult. What are the areas that seem barren right now? And just ask the question honestly, are you sowing life in those areas? Man, if you are, praise God because there's gonna be a harvest coming. Just keep believing and keep sowing, keep doing that. But if you're not investing in those areas, if you're not sowing life in those areas, don't expect to get a return. Don't be shocked when there's no harvest. Make sure that you're working the principle of sowing and reaping to your benefit in your life. And perhaps you were thinking, you know, sowing and reaping sure sounds a whole lot like karma. And you know what, it it, it kind of is. But there's some key differences. And first of all, karma is not an absolute principle. There are terrible people who die rich and happy. In the Psalms, David even wrestled with the question of why do I see wicked people prospering? So karma is not not absolute. Secondly, the Bible tells us that God works sowing and reaping in the life of the believer. We've talked about this before. God doesn't discipline people who aren't his kids. Just like in the playground, if somebody else's kid is being a brat, I might want to walk over and smack him upside the head, but I don't. Why? Because they're not my kid. 
They're not my kid. They're someone else's responsibility. And so the Lord makes sure in the life of the believer that this sowing and reaping principle operates. It's what we saw with Jacob. He was a deceiver. So God said, let me give you an encounter with someone who's even better at it than you so that you can learn this lesson and change and grow. So this is what God is gonna do in the life of the believer. That's what that verse said in Galatians. Don't be deceived. God's not gonna be mocked. What Paul is saying is if you think that you're gonna put one over on God, that you're gonna somehow not obey the Lord, rebel against the Lord in an area of your life and there'll be no consequence, the Bible says don't think you're gonna mock God that way. What goes around is gonna come around. It's guaranteed to happen. But thirdly, and most importantly, and here's the hope for you and I, sowing and reaping is not like karma because most importantly, the gospel is the complete opposite of sowing and reaping. Write that down. The gospel is good news because it is the complete opposite of sowing and reaping. As we read earlier, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And we've all sinned. We've all sowed sin. And death was the harvest that was coming for all of us. In the cause and effect relationship, we caused sin. And death was the inevitable effect that was coming for every single one of us. But God, in his grace and kindness, God interrupted the universal law of cause and effect and offered us the gift of eternal life. Instead, our sins are exchanged for the righteousness of Jesus. He has not loved us as we deserve. He has not given us the effect of the cause. He's loved us in a way that is the exact opposite of what we deserve. Karma, cause and effect, sowing and reaping, whatever you wanna call it, was interrupted and broken by the work of Jesus on the cross. That's why we love him so much. That's why we love him so much. That's why we live for him. That's why he's the center of our lives. That's why he's our God. That's why he's our king. He turned the universe upside down for us and caused mercy to triumph over judgment. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes and Let's pray together. And Father, we just want to begin by saying thank you. We look around us and see a a cause and effect universe demonstrated all over the place. Lord, we see sowing and reaping playing out in our lives, in our marriages, in our families. But Lord, first of all, thank you that you broke the rules and you interrupted all that so that mercy could triumph over judgment, so that we could have hope through your son, Jesus. Thank you that you have not loved us as we deserve, but have given us what we did not deserve, your grace, your kindness, your love, your acceptance and adoption into your family. We're so thankful for that, Lord. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, every single one of us would be gifted with wisdom from you to recognize that your word is true, that your ways lead to life and the paths of sin lead to death. Father, help us to all reach the point where we finally start saying, I believe it, and stop saying, yeah, but maybe it's not true in this area. Let's see what happens. 
Lord, would you help us just to trust you wholeheartedly by pursuing you and your ways in every area of life. Lord, I pray for anyone going through a barren area of life right now. Lord, would you empower them and inspire them and encourage them to begin sowing, to begin investing, and to keep faith, keep hope alive that as they do that, the day is coming when there will be a harvest. Help them not to lose hope. Help them to keep the faith, Jesus. Just in this moment, would you just still your heart before the Lord and just ask the Holy Spirit what he wants to say to you? What does he want to speak to your heart? What area of your life is he trying to shine a spotlight on right now? Just give him that permission to speak to you and put yourself in a place to listen and a place to hear. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.